So hello everyone and welcome to this issue of the UX Australia podcast. I'm joined today by Margot Bloomstein. Margot, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm stoked to be here. Now you are in the US. Um, can you tell us whereabouts you are and how things are for you right now? Sure. Well, I'm about uh, about 20, 25 minutes west of Boston um, in kind of a fairly rural suburban kind of area. Um, looking out my window right now. Well, right now it's dark outside here, <laughs> but normally during the day, um, I'm usually seeing there's a flock of uh, 21 turkeys that I oftentimes see kind of wobbling past my office window and they get really, really loud, which is always fun when I'm in the middle of a meeting. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's cold. It's snowy. We're I was going to say, has, of... have you had snow? Is it? Oh yeah, yeah. We got I think like another uh, four inches or so yesterday, and I think that we are coming out of the winter of our discontent. I think things are starting to look up because. We, we are voting and we are acting in ways that will hopefully bring them up um, across so many of the issues that we've been dealing with here and across the world. So that is how I feel about how things are now. Now, it's, it's interesting, uh, just sort of touching briefly on the election, um, massive turnout, record turnout on both yeah. sides. Um, mm -hmm. Over 150 million votes, I think, were cast in the election. Do I have right. that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Because I want to say it's it was I should have the numbers, but I want to say it's around seventy five or seventy eight million to maybe seventy one million. So and and that's up from only one hundred and twenty odd thousand. Uh, sorry, one hundred and twenty odd million in the last election. So that's a massive increase in people getting out and voting um, with all the restrictions with the pandemic. Um, it was great to see. Right, right. I mean, our we, we talk so much about the importance of representation. And I think at a very basic level, kind of beyond our industry, um, the same is true for democracy. Um, democracy is a participatory activity and mm. it works better for everyone involved when there are more people involved, when more people are showing up not just during the election season, but throughout yes. our our time as citizens to mm. to write letters, to be in touch with our government officials, to to encourage more people to run for office, to choose to run for office ourselves. Um, and then certainly there was a lot of effort this time around to get more people to the polls, to mm. to help more people that have been disenfranchised, whether they were um, were former uh, prison inmates mm -hmm. that now can secure the right to vote mm -hmm. again, um, or people for whom maybe their polling place had changed or mm -hmm. their county had closed down polling yep. places, mm -hmm. especially down south. There was a lot yeah. of effort to say, no, this is, this is our right. So what are the logistics that need to be in place to make sure that we can secure mm -hmm. that right, that, that we can still act on that right? It was it was great to see, um, you know, yeah. speaking from Australia where voting is mandatory, um, you get fined for not voting in Australia. Um, I love that. I love that. It, it is actually really good. Um, mm. But at the same time, we do still have this issue with uh, people engaging in that civic discourse and that civic duty, um, what it means to be um, political 
um, with a very sort of lowercase p, um, but just to be engaged in issues to understand what it is that you want to understand representation. Um, you know, we, we do still have those issues in Australia, but it's not, it's not the same struggle that you see with yeah. voter suppression and getting out the vote in the US. Right, right. Well, and I think when we when we talk about it in terms of voter suppression, we're saying what government is doing to citizens. But then when we think about, well, what is the effect that citizens can have on government? Mm. In a representative democracy, we should be having a huge effect on government because government has a huge effect on us. Yeah. Um, but then we have to wrestle with not voter suppression, but voter cynicism mm -hmm. and how government, how politicians, how media that is enabling those politicians, mm -hmm. how it stokes cynicism. Yep. And that's a huge problem. Because I think we've seen over the past few years, like the effects of gaslighting on participation. And when people get to this point of saying, you know, what does my vote matter? Mm. I mean, here they don't face the penalty of being fined if they don't vote. Yeah. But maybe we face the stiffer penalty, though, of if you don't participate in it, you can't complain about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and yet people do. Um, right, and they, right. they, comp they complain about it in the same way um, that they treat other spectator sports. You know, um, they, they cry foul at the referee. They complain about the opposition player. You know, they, they complain about the, the dumb play that got called by the coach um, without ever wanting to run onto the field themselves. Right. Um, and that's absolutely something that we need to change. Yeah. Yeah. That that's so true, especially when we realize that you don't need to have I mean, we, we've seen over the past few years, you really don't need to have special skills to, to join into politics, <laughs> even to, to rise to the highest upper echelons of our political system. You don't need to be special, mm -hmm. um, but that anybody can participate and anybody mm. should participate at mm. some level because citizenship is participatory. Mm -hmm. It isn't just getting benefits. It's creating the kind of government that you yeah. want. Yeah. And that, I, that's something that we struggle with. Absolutely. Now, um, speaking of change and speaking of, uh, of new things, you have a book coming out in March, Trustworthy. Um, it is available for pre-order right now. So whenever people uh, listen to this podcast, they will be able to go and, and place an order for it. But can you, can you tell us a, a little bit about the book? What is, it, what is it you're dealing with in the book? Sure. So um, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism, as we were just mm, discussing, yeah. and Bridge the Trust Gap. Um, I looked at brands across a wide variety of industries and geographies and, and organizations of different sizes in the private sector and public sector to see what's what's been going on over the past few years. Because probably around 2015, 2016, mm. I was noticing how in the U.S., um, something was happening. Politicians on both sides of the aisle were playing fast and loose with the truth. And it used to be that if you caught a politician um, lying or, or changing their perspective on an issue, we would castigate them and call that flip-flopping and being caught lying, that would scuttle a campaign. Mm -hmm. And um, that wasn't happening anymore. <laughs> mm. And And then I noticed over the past few years how the issues around that in terms of gaslighting and mm -hmm. telling people 
don't notice these problems and also don't trust the, the evidence of your own eyes and don't seek out information from any other sources. Just trust me, whether you know it was a politician saying that or, or a news station saying mm-hmm. that. Yep. The problems created by that um, started to trickle out into other industries where, where people were having a tough time trusting any sources of expertise, whether it was news media or, um, or the marketing departments and messaging from brands that they used to trust, that they used to just kind of take on face value. Mm-hmm. And marketing messaging was falling flat and sales cycles were slowing down in both B2C and B2C, uh, B2B and B2C contexts. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what was going on there. And what I was seeing was that we had this rise in cynicism where people were saying, I can't trust anybody. Everybody's out to sell you something. Um, Mm -hmm. All politicians lie. That's how they get you. Mm -hmm. So I won't trust those external sources of expertise. Instead, I'll just trust people just like me on Yelp, on hotels.com, et cetera. And then Mm -hmm. we became more aware of those filter bubbles. All the dangers in them, and you saw people sort of pull back even further and say, Well, I'll just go with my gut. If it feels right, it probably is right. And the problem with that is that after facing and during a few years of gaslighting, as people were turning inward to say, Well, what are my gut instincts? We had lost those gut instincts. And that's a problem that affects all industries where we ask people to evaluate information and then make mm-hmm. decisions on it. Mm-hmm. People have lost the ability to make good decisions and feel confident about the, the decisions they do make. So in writing Trustworthy, I met with creative directors and designers and writers and CMOs, you know, broad variety of organizations that do foster trust mm-hmm. to figure out what they were doing and figure out what we could do with those lessons to see if there were any common patterns. And I found them in a framework around voice, the volume of information, Mm -hmm. and how they bring vulnerability to communication. And so that's what I wrote about in Trustworthy, because the problems that we're talking about in politics and in other industries and in cynicism and in trust, they are big problems. And this is one of those cases where design won't save the world, but it can make it more worth saving. Mm -hmm. And I think as designers and writers and people that are in the business of communication and experiences, um, we can make the world more worth saving. We can do the things that we can do to encourage trust again, to help businesses foster trust, to help rebuild confidence. And then that's something that our users can then bring throughout their lives. And so we can help kickstart society again. When you talk about, um, you know, those uh, different issues um, to voice, vulnerability is one that I find Mm. particularly interesting, especially in the context of um, both commercial brands, but also um, politicians um, and and the news media. Um, How does that play out? Like, how do we see that play out? Is it things like taking ownership for mistakes and being sort of, um, honest about those sorts of things, you know, like, no, we, we, we screwed that up or, um, you know, is it, is it that type of, of thing that you're thinking of or is it something else? You know, I would say 
when I first started writing the book, that's how I thought about vulnerability, taking Mm. responsibility for our mistakes, saying, you know, in the form of a good apology, here's Mm. what happened. Here's what I did. Not here. Here's just what happened, but here Mm. was my role in it. Um, Here's what I learned. So it won't happen again. And maybe here's how you can hold me accountable. Mm. But it's funny because I feel like in writing a book, yeah, it's a chance to to share your ideas and guide other people, but it's also a chance to learn so much. And what I learned in writing it was that there's also an element of vulnerability in how brands share their values when they're willing to kind okay. of put a stake in the ground and say, mm. this is who we are. This is what we believe. Now you know us better and you can decide if this matters to you too. Yeah, interesting. And I think... Um, as far as like examples of that, mm. um, I know that we can see that sort of across a variety of different industries right now around different social issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it in Australia. We certainly see it in the U.S. Mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, like with the rise of Black Lives Matter this summer, as more organizations kind of realize that, wait, th- this is not some fringe movement. This is not mm-hmm. some um, kind of extremist perspective this is something that matters to us. It matters to our employees. It matters to our customers. Mm. And this is on the right side of history. And we want to be on the right side of history as different organizations try to wade into that space and Mm. say, here's how we feel about it. That's a point of vulnerability because they were taking a risk. Mm. They may have turned off some customers and found others. How do you um, tell the difference between the performative aspects of that versus the genuine, um, the genuine acts of uh, support or positioning or, or, or vulnerability. And I, I um, you, you mentioned um, the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's a that's a good example that we see both in in Australia and New Zealand, um, and in the US uh, quite clearly. In Australia, we're coming up to um, Mardi Gras in Sydney is on in in a few weeks' time. There's um, therefore a rush of um, brands coming out, promoting their support for uh, the LGBTQI community um, and how wonderful they are. We'll see um, rainbows everywhere. Um, how, How do we keep them to and hold them to account for those values in a month's time afterwards, in six months' time afterwards, like, how do you how do you tell the difference between the performance and the and the reality? I think the I think mathematically the difference between performance and reality is authenticity, yep. and the the brands that are well, I I, I want to just back up from that and mm-hmm. say that some people call out organizations that that talk a lot about their values that are willing to say, we support this cause, you know, look at us like changing our logo to be in a rainbow and whatnot, um, either next month or or during pride or something. Hmm. And they say, you know, that, that is just performative or um, that's some sort of like, like social justice warrior virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt about that, you know, there is enough, um, signaling of far grosser behaviors that I want more virtue signaling in the world. 
And I think that brands that are willing to say, this is what we believe, and they say it loudly, and they say it proudly, Mm -hmm. they serve as a beacon to others, to other Mm -hmm. customers and other organizations within their industry that can also realize that it is important to take a stand on this. And I think getting to the heart of your question of, well, is it more than just virtue signaling? Mm -hmm. Um, We can look and see, well, First, how do they make good on it? If they say that um, that they support these issues, how do they do it through mm-hmm. active hiring and recruiting and trying to retain people in, um, in embracing kind of a more inclusive culture and adopting mm-hmm. a more inclusive culture in the office? Mm-hmm. Um, what do they do outside of, of the month of pride? Um, what else are they what else are they doing and what have they done historically mm-hmm. to invest monetarily in these issues, not just in an ad campaign? but in how they foster an inclusive culture as well. Um, Because I think around Black Lives Matter, around Me Too, we did see a lot of brands come out and say, this is what we support. And then we heard from their employees that, well, wait, you don't actually support that in hiring and firing and promotion and whatnot. Um, So I think that we we can measure authenticity by what their commitment has looked like over time and then what they're doing now. Mm. And that's not to say that brands need to always point to a track record sure, because, sure. and this kind of goes back to that other point. Well, we want of new allies ability. as well, right? What's that? We want new allies as well. Right, exactly. And I think that when organizations are able to say, yeah, we didn't always think this, but mm. this is how we've continued to learn and grow over time. And now we do believe that this is important and here's how we're going to change moving mm-hmm. forward. Mm. I think that that's really powerful. Mm. Um, and I think we've certainly seen that like in the US, um, like Joe Biden has gone through that kind of, I would say Absolutely. metamorphosis. Yeah. Um, mm. Like in his support for gay marriage, in his opposition to um Uh, to racialized policing and all. Mm -hmm. And now in how he does support the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Like he's someone that supported and and actually wrote a bill that increased um, racially insensitive policing. Mm -hmm. And since then, he's learned and he's responded and he's criticized his own past behavior and beliefs Mm -hmm. to now come around and say, this is what I support now. And here's how I'm going to prioritize it in my Mm -hmm. administration. Yeah which is great to see. Mm. There's um, a, a role that is played by uh, media in, in trust, but I'm, I'm curious about um, what we've seen over the last sort of few years about the role of social media. And I'm thinking in particular about, um, you know, uh, various influences in um, particularly mediums like um, Instagram and, and TikTok. Uh, more recently, and the role that that's playing in, I guess, if I'm if I'm not going to trust the organisation, I'm not going to trust the institution, and I start to trust people instead. We've seen this rise of you know YouTubers and Instagram influencers, etc., as a proxy for that. It's their endorsement, their recommendation that now carries the weight that we used to put onto institutional expertise. So you're asking about like how that has affected our yeah. our sense of trust. Yeah, and that's a hard one. Um, I do feel that with the change that we've seen from organizations over the past twenty years to become mm-hmm. more human scale, that mm-hmm. plays out on social media as well. Yep, and 
And when I say more human scale, I mean that if you think back to like the 1980s when organizations, brands always wanted to seem bigger than they were. Like that was the era of like big hair and everybody wore shoulder pads. And even our brands wore shoulder pads. It was like they wanted to all seem bigger than they were. That was like the the fake it till you make it era. Corporate conglomerates. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've seen the trend go in the other direction where Mm -hmm. when you have big conglomerates that acquire small mom and pop businesses, Mm. now they don't try to just gobble them up and, um, and kind of neutralize or replace all their marketing. If anything, they'll encourage them to maintain that similar small brand kind of personality um, so that they seem actually smaller than they are. You don't always realize that maybe the granola bar company that you're supporting or the the cereal that you buy is actually produced by this giant megalith organization. Mm. Um, And I think the way we see that play out in social media is where brands themselves are adopting a tone that is more one-to-one. We see the representatives of different brands. Mm. Um, you know, somebody in the marketing department will oftentimes like refer to themselves in the mm-hmm. first person. You might know the name of the person that is running the social media account, mm-hmm. or it's that brand kind of talking as though they're one person speaking of themselves in the singular. Yep. In the singular. Yep. And I think when they partner with different social media influencers then as mm. well, it's an opportunity for one person to be the voice of the brand um, or to, to offer their endorsement for the brand, which is interesting because it makes you feel like you have a relationship then with that brand and with that person, but you don't. You, you just kind of have that, the aura of a relationship, all the, all the things that are kind of the whiff of a relationship without any depth to it. I don't know that it's a good thing, but it's certainly the thing that we can contend with now. Margot, thank you very much for your time. That's been wonderful. Um, for people listening, Trustworthy is uh, out now. Um, it's uh, out for uh, pre-order and you'll uh, see your copies in March. Margot, lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Take care. <laughs>